Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, chaplain, professor, writer, and speaker, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today we're going to be talking about stewarding our time and numbering our days. Life is busy, and ministry and church life can be incredibly busy, but the Bible also teaches us that rest, Sabbath time, and time management are characteristics of wise people. And so on the show today, we're going to discuss the topic of stewarding your time and numbering our days. Now, Aaron, most people are interested in time management. They read books and blogs about it, but they might question if this is more of a management question than a biblical question. And so thoughts on your responses there. I think for those of us in pastoral ministry, that's probably true. Uh, When we were in seminary for many years, there's a lot of emphasis on learning to handle the scriptures, on exegesis, on theology, on preaching, on counseling, on youth ministry or mission work. And then even in the life of the church, we spend a lot of time thinking about the practicalities of ministry. So when most people think of ministry in my life, like, well, what's the best thing I could do? Well, I I should preach more. I should counsel more. I should lead organizing ministries. The practical stuff is really, really important. And when you start talking about time management, people's eyes glaze over like, who really cares about that? That's more of managed. I didn't, I didn't go into ministry to, to be a manager. I didn't, I'm not, I wasn't asked to serve in ministry. I didn't think to be a manager. I just want to meet people. I just want to preach, counsel, and and and, and serve in those uh, frontline ministries. Mm-hmm. But I think that time and the way we handle our time is important to God. And how we steward our lives is a conversation that comes up in the Word of God. For example, in Psalm 90, Verse 12, the Bible says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So there we have, teach us to number our days. In other words, teach us to live with a consciousness of time, the brevity of life, living with the knowledge that we have a a limited lifespan. We don't live forever. So if we were to look at the scriptures and we go with the the average, which is still the global average, three score and 10, Mm -hmm. the average person lives plus or minus 70 years. In Canada, I think we're we're closer to 80 years, and some desperate third world countries, the lifespan might be 37, 38, 39. But on average, around the globe, people live 70 years. So 70 years works out to approximately 25,000 days. And here's where the brevity of life gets a little bit shocking. So I'm thinking about this. I If I have roughly 25,000 days to live my life, and those of you that are listening, just think about how, how old are you, how many years of your life have you already used up, how many days of your life have you already used up, what percentage of your life have you already burnt through? So I've gone through about 18,000 days of my 25,000 days so that means I only have about 7,000 wow. days left. So I am well over the hill <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and down, down the other side. 
Now, of course, you know, you could die. I could die tomorrow. I could live till I'm 90, whatever. But we're just talking about the, the law of averages. And when you put it in, into perspective like that, so I got about 25,000 days. I've used 18,000 up. It's like, wow, I don't want to blow the last 7,000. Mm -hmm. And a third of every day is spent sleeping. So we spend, you know, eight hours of 24 uh, sleeping approximately. So we have a, a limited window of time. And God has taught us to to count our days, to number our days. In other words, to live with an acute awareness of the brevity of life, the speed at which life goes by. And then there's a passage that comes to mind from Ephesians chapter 5, and I brought it along, verses 15 and 16. It's also said in the context of wise living. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Like, well, what would be, what would I assume to be the next statement that Paul's going to make there? If I want to live wisely, here's what he says, making the best use of time because the days are evil. So based upon that passage in the Psalms and Ephesians, we can conclude that a wise person will number their days, will live with the knowledge of the brevity of life, and will make the best use of their time. And then just more broadly, when we look at the Word of God and we look at laws pertaining to Sabbath-keeping, instructions pertaining to rest or Sabbath-keeping, instructions like we see in the Proverbs, Proverbs 19.5, to avoid idleness lest we be hungry, instructions to study the Word of God. These are all time-related commands. These all take time. Study takes time. Mm -hmm. Idleness is a sin because it's a waste of one's time. Sabbath-keeping requires us to pattern our lives according to time, You know that principle of, of one in seven. Rest requires us to withdraw from work. Work requires us to withdraw from rest. So the Bible actually has a lot to say about time. We are creatures of time. God is not constrained by time, but we are limited, finite creatures. And we, we need to think about how we use our time. So without question, wise people who understand that they are stewards, not owners, will make an effort to steward their time. It doesn't mean we're going to calculate every second, but we need to have a general grasp of how our days, our weeks, our months, our years, our decades are being spent. And when we go to bed at night, we need to be able to say, I, I feel that I used my time productively. Otherwise, mm -hmm. we're, we're poor stewards. We're wasting this resource. Think of time as a resource, a gift. Yep. We're wasting this time or resource that God has has given to to us. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people compare time to a resource like money, and there's ways that you can waste your money and you're not even aware of it. So maybe if we think of time as a resource, what are some of the, the key and most important or significant time wasters. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the difference between money is we can print more. Yes. We can dig up more gold. Yeah. We can get higher paying jobs. We can accumulate, but you can't roll back the clock. Mm -hmm. So I've been kicking around this planet for 50 years and I can't go back to my 49th, 48th, 47th birthday. There's 50 years behind me now and roughly 20 ahead. So... It's limited, it's, it's in short supply, and I need to think about what are some areas of my life that I might be 
wasting my time. And so what I what I want to do is I want to talk first of all to pastors. And the reason I want to talk to pastors, elders, church leaders, church staff, just to identify what I think are some time wasters in ministry is because in many ways we set the pace for other believers. The way we spend our time communicates to other believers who are looking to us for direction how time should be spent. Now, presumably we all know that there are certain sinful activities that we shouldn't be spending any time on. I'm not going to address those. I just want to point out that many of the things that we spend our time on may be good, Mm -hmm. but may be in excess. We want to strive for balance. In modern ministry, ministry in this century, in this generation, there are, I believe, a lot of unnecessary distractions Mm -hmm. in ministry that waste our time. So these are not bad things in and of themselves. I'm not against these things in principle, but it's not a bad idea to assess once in a while, how am I using my life in relationship to these things? So let me just identify some so we can kind of put them on the table and and think through them. So the one that comes to mind is communication tools. Unlike people serving in vocational ministry 70 years ago, We have a plethora of communication tools at our disposal. We can text one another. Some people use WhatsApp, Telegram, signal messaging, Facebook Messenger. We obviously have emails, text messages, good old-fashioned phone calls. A multiplicity of communication tools are at our disposal. You know what? Mm. Many people are connected to three, four, five, six of those. So you're literally, you're in your office. Ding, you're getting signal messages. Ding, you're getting telegram messages. Ding, you're getting messenger messages. Text messages are coming in. Emails are coming in. You can burn through an entire day Mm -hmm. just responding to messages from people. In the old days, and and many of those messages are good and necessary, but in the old Mm -hmm. days, we had to be a little bit more selective in how we communicated. We had to write a letter by hand or type out a letter, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it. Maybe maybe some of the younger generation don't even know what that is. Put a stamp <laughs> on it, write out the address, post the code, put your return address, go to the mailbox. So you didn't just write letters indiscriminately, but now we live in a culture where, oh, if it just, I have a, a thought that crosses my mind, I better text Chris. I can just text him. Mm-hmm. And when we're in relationships with hundreds and hundreds of people, that can become overwhelming. So I believe it's important to limit our communication tools and limit the times of day when we respond. We don't have to respond to texts within 15 minutes. We don't have to give everyone our phone number. We don't have to respond to every email. Mm -hmm. We don't have to respond to every, we don't have to sign up for every communication tool. I'm often uh, asked to join chat groups, you know, on Signal or whatnot. Mm -hmm. I leave most of them behind because no matter what you say, you say, okay, this, this chat group, let's say it's for senior pastors, that want to discuss pandemic responses. Inevitably, it turns into, hey, guys, would you mind promoting my conference? Would you mind Mm -hmm. reading this book? Hey, what do you think about this? Hey, did you hear about that? And you're in all these chat groups, and there's all these messages coming in because people don't stay true to the founding purpose of the chat group, and it's exhausting. And at the end of the day, I didn't even get my sermon started. Mm -hmm. Just responding to communication. So I think it's important to limit that. Social media, great ministry tool, to speak broadly to a broad audience, we can use it. 
but we can overuse it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, social media surfing, sort of the entertainment side of it, watching reels, checking out people's profiles, whatever it might be, can burn through a ton of time. Mm-hmm. So I would just say, if I come across a pastor that seems to know every public scandal that's going on in Christendom, that knows about every church split, that's up on every theological dispute, I would ask the question, does this person and is this person really using their time wisely? Mm. Like there should be a lot of things we don't know about. It's proof that we're in the books, we're focusing on people, we're doing the main things. I don't have time to be up on every theological dispute and to be aware of every moment-by-moment event that's taking place in the world. And I don't think ever any responsible pastor should know all that either, unless you, you're in a specific ministry niche where you have a ministry that relates to the specific cultural issues or whatnot. Right. So I have a suspicion, and I, I understand this might be mildly hurtful or stepping on some toes. I have a suspicion that a lot of people in ministry feel a pressure to be in the know on everything and may spend far too much time on social media and not necessarily doing the best job that they could in pastoring the people that God mm-hmm. has put in front of them. Yeah. And just as a sidebar, look, until you've built your church up to a sizable congregation that's solid, has a robust eldership, is self-sufficient, you should be focusing 99% of your time on your church, yep. not on the latest drama in your denomination or whatnot. Okay, the third yeah. thing is, I love conferences. Conferences are great. Yeah. I don't think we should be attending six conferences a year. It's conference season from September through to April, May, and many of them are good, but we have to be selective. No pastor who's seminary trained and has a full-time ministry needs to be at three, five, six, ten conferences a year. I doubt many of our par- parishioners enjoy that in their regular employment, you know, a month in the job and a half a week away at a conference. So we need to limit the number of conferences we go through. Again, they can be great, encouraging, but we have to have time in our schedule to focus on our primary duties. Sabbaticals. I remember years ago, the church encouraged me to take a sabbatical. I took one for three months. It was okay. Um, If I were to ever do one again, I would do it for a much shorter period of time because Mm -hmm. I felt it took me about a year to get back in the saddle and rebuild the church. But Mm -hmm. I know guys, they'll go on, you know, they'll get three, four, five, six, seven weeks vacation every year. They... They get Mondays off. Their Saturdays are often free, but they're always burnt out. They need a sabbatical. And then they they add a sabbatical to their vacation, a vacation of their sabbatical. It's like, yeah, do you actually enjoy being in ministry or are you just looking for time off? Mm. So it's it's good for us to have time off, but sabbaticals can burn through a whole lot of time. I know they're a biblical concept, but um, if we schedule our lives in a productive way and schedule in rest and Sabbath time, there's probably not very infrequently will there be a need uh, for a, a, an elongated uh, sabbatical. So, you know, the whole thing, um, thank God it's Friday. Yeah. You know, for people that don't really like work, they don't have a redemptive view. Work. Thank God it's Friday. They work Monday to Friday. Thank God it's Friday. I'm living for the weekend. You say pastors, it's thank God it's Monday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, pastors shouldn't be, you know, thank God it's sabbatical time either. I mean, if, mm-hmm. if you if you need one and it's, it's necessary, fine, I'm not opposed to it. But um, I, I sometimes get the, the feeling that guys, 
want to be away from their churches. They 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 want to retire as soon as possible. They want any excuse not mm-hmm. to be around. And I know ministry is stressful. Uh, you know, I have proof of it in my thinning hairline. But uh, we can do too much of a good thing. Mm-hmm. Not bashing sabbaticals, but we can do too much yep. of a good thing. That's right. Here's a fifth one that comes to mind. Outside speaking engagements. As, as a pastor, the older you get, the more refined you get in your views, there's going to be opportunities, presumably, that open up for you to speak at conferences, other churches. And also, if you're part of a network, it just might be a good thing on occasion to speak in other sister churches. Mm-hmm. But we have to limit those. And and I know, I know all of you pastors that are, that are listening, you're awesome, and, and you're the best preacher around, and everyone wants to hear your sermons, you know, and God forbid that other churches don't have the opportunity to enjoy a piece of you. (laughs) Um, But if you're a shepherd of your flock, I'm not sure it's the best use of your time for you to be leaving your flock monthly to um, collect an honorarium at another church and fill another pulpit. Once in a while, it's okay. The older I get, the fewer outside speaking engagements I actually take because I want to be with my flock. I want to mm-hmm. minister to my my people. The grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. Mm-hmm. And while there's opportunities for that, they're just I I, w- I would suggest come up with a number and limit it to that. You know, I'll speak in another church twice a year or something like mm-hmm. that, and limit it to that. Six, a six time waster for many people in ministry are the various networks and denominations or fellowships they're a part of. Now, we are truly a non-denominational church, but we've been part of a couple different fellowships or networks uh, over the years. And uh, aspects of those I miss, miss some of the more up-close personal pastoral relationships, but I don't miss the conferences and I don't miss the meetings. So oftentimes the way denominations that are set up, there's uh, the way ours was set up, there there were local meetings that took place once a month there were uh, provincial, or if you're in the U.S. state-level meetings that took place maybe two, three, four times a year. And then, then there were national events and initiatives. And at one point, I was uh, chairing or involved in leadership and board work on, on all three of those levels. And you got to drive two, three hours to meetings. It just, you step back and you think, it's not that they're bad, but my responsibilities with my denomination mm-hmm. were starting to eat up probably 10% of my ministry time. And it's just, and and I'm not sure there's a lot of fruit born from it. Mm-hmm. So being, being careful in how you're engaging with your broader network of uh, pastoral colleagues is important. It's good to meet, to minister to one another. You know, pastors are the best ones to minister to other pastors. There's things we go through that lay people don't, don't fully and probably never will understand the dynamics of ministry. And it's good to exchange idea ideas, but no pastor needs to be at a weekly network meeting, uh, area ministerials and denominational activities. We don't, there's no reason for that. It just takes too much time and your people need you. Mm-hmm. Seventh, meetings within the church. Um, I, I think I lean in the direction of being relatively well organized. I like to be organized, but over the years, I've learned that I can be, if I build infrastructure, build people around me, delegate responsibilities, I can actually get to a point ministry where I'm attending very few meetings. Mm-hmm. Very rarely am I in meetings because you've delegated, you've equipped, 
You've taken the time to write ministry descriptions. You've established the boundaries. You've given people responsibilities. And the, you don't need to meet. I don't, I don't need to meet with you and say, hey, give me a weekly update on what you're doing. If I've given you a good ministry description, mm -hmm. you have annual reviews, uh, you have a budget you're responsible for, et cetera. There are pastors that attend meetings every week. It might shock people. I pastor a church of 12, 13, 1400 people. I rarely go to meetings. Uh, I'm with people, I'm preaching, mm -hmm. but I'm not, we have a staff meeting once a week where we're just eating lunch and dialoguing. We have an elders meeting once a month. Apart from that, I hardly go to any meetings. But I know guys that are in meetings every single day. It's like they're meetings to plan services. Why do I need to be in a meeting to plan a service? We have people that know their job, their responsibility. We we can communicate through mm -hmm. email. Uh, but there are churches where there's meetings, everyone's together to plan the service. Then there's, I heard of a church that spends two or three hours, I think on a Tuesday or Wednesday, debriefing about the previous service. Then there's finance meetings and ministry meetings and prayer meetings and AGM meetings and all kinds of meetings. Well, meetings are meant to facilitate ministry. Mm -hmm. Now, I know there's fellowship and coffee and donuts or whatever you enjoy at your meetings. Or be, there can be some auxiliary benefits. But I would say try to set up your schedule so you're more active in ministry and there's fewer meetings that you're taking place. It can waste a lot of your time. You're called to minister, not to meetings. And finally, visitation and hospitality. I love it. I love being with people, but I don't need to know everyone. I just had to get over that. There's a lot of pastors, maybe it's the church board that's pressuring them or the culture of the church that needs to be revamped. It's like, pastor, mm -hmm. we all need a piece of your time. Well, not everybody in my church is going to know me personally or get a piece of my time. Mm -hmm. we, ha we have a schedule. We try to invite some people over. Uh, maybe some that are hearing this is like, why wasn't I invited over? I don't know. There's no reason. It's not because we don't like you. Yeah. There's hundreds of people around. Maybe another elder will invite you over, another person in the church. We don't all need to be best friends, and you just need to get over yourself as a pastor if you feel some need to literally spend time with every single person in your church. Build more small groups. Mm -hmm. Build more shepherds. Visitation and coffee and donuts even these long lunches. I used to go for lunches, lunch with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You know, by the time you meet, drive to the restaurant, have the meal, talk, you could waste, not waste, but you could spend two, two and a half hours with someone. Well, how many times can I do that in a week before A, I break the budget and I just run out of time? Yep. But what I can do is I can say to someone, hey, could you meet me at the church for a coffee? Maybe that'll be a 45 minute meeting. So now I can meet more people in shorter periods of time. I still accomplish the same thing. So those are some things that come to my mind that I've had to learn, and I've, I've had to learn some of these the hard way over the years that that pastors, I think, need to think through and um, and then through their example, set an example for the people that are following them, the people that are in various um, other areas yeah. of ministry. Yeah, and I think it would be fair to say this is something you've learned over the years. The church has grown as well, and then it positions the church for further growth because you're not tied up in every small thing, right? So yes, you're right. Um, one of the principles that I don't even know where this came from, but I've someone told me this many years ago is always act as a church, structure plan as a church, bigger than you actually are. Like mm -hmm. you got to get ahead of the curve. So if I think, oh, okay, I 
if you're in a church right now where you're like, it's still small enough where I I literally can spend up close and personal time with everyone, like it doesn't tax my schedule, okay, fine. What if tomorrow God doubles your church? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do then? Now you've messed yourself over because you've you've set an expectation in the church that everyone knows you, and all of a sudden a crisis happens and culture people flood into your church or a revival happens or suddenly your city becomes a boom town and everyone moves there. Now you've doubled your church, but you've set a standard that everyone has personal access to you. How do you recreate that culture? So pastors need to sort of look around the curve in the road and pastor and shepherd and make decisions and organize their time so that they, they're they ready for exponential growth. And why would we not? I, I'm not sure we should expect exponential growth, but I think it's it's godly and biblical and faith-filled to anticipate it, yep. to act in such a way that we're looking for God to continue to build our local assemblies. And so we're, we need to act accordingly. Mm-hmm. Now, you've talked a bit about pastors. Can we talk about pastors and Christians? Like some of the struggles that we might face alike, similar struggles. Yeah. So we um, we chatted with our staff about this a little bit this week, and they were helpful in stimulating my thinking. So, uh, you know, I want to give some of the credit some of the credit for my thinking to their thinking. Mm-hmm. So one would be stay in your lane. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, we, we don't, we don't want to grow weary of well-doing. So let's say you are, you've been asked to be a youth leader in your church, a deacon, an elder, a small group leader, a counselor on the governing board, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And then in ad- addition to that, because you're good at what you do and you're a faithful servant, you're teaching Sunday school, you're on the finance team, you're on the greeting team, you know, you're you're cutting grass, whatever it might be. Ask yourself, is that really a good use of your time? Mm. Most lay people, talk about this in a bit, have no more than 10 hours a week to dedicate specifically to church ministry. And for some, maybe five, but you know, when you juggle all your other responsibilities. So it's better to spend 90% of your time in one specific area of ministry. We say stay in your lane. Mm-hmm. Become really good at that. Become really effective at that. When you start to say yes to everything and you deviate from your primary responsibility, this is when you can start to you, you actually reduce your effectiveness because you mm-hmm. ministry time. When you execute a plan in ministry, you're you're preaching, you're counseling, you're leading a youth group. There's a lot of mental time that's required to lead up to that. Yep. If you just look at the the frontline time you're spending. Say, okay, it's only going to take me an hour to preach the sermon, uh, two hours to lead this youth group, and three hours to lead my discipleship group. So three, two, one, yeah, that's six hours. So I can schedule six hours for that. Mm. But did you schedule time to prepare for that, to pray about those events, to lead up Mm. to those events? That could be another six, 10, who knows knows how many hours. So staying focused in your lane allows you to pour your mental time into one specific area of ministry. So we we often will say in our church, we don't police it. Like it's not like we go around tapping people on the shoulder or asking them to submit timesheets. But we ideally we want people to serve in one area with 90% of their time and reserve 10% for other things. But it's so easy to get interested in others. And even yeah. on staff, and over the years we've had staff people that start off with a specific ministry description and all of a sudden they're serving in all sorts of areas and I have to kind of rein them in or you have to rein them in and say, yep. no, we don't want you doing everything. Yep. So 
we can waste time by not being focused mm-hmm. on the area that God has uniquely equipped us for. Secondly, doing good things that don't actually benefit the ministry. For example, church boards. I remember being on a denominational board one time, and we would come and, and we would have conversations about trust funds and governance of the organization and marketing and advertising and providing pastoral profiles to churches, not on on. And um, it wasn't uncommon for us to have a day, day and a half meeting, and on our board table would be a stack of documents at least an inch thick Mm -hmm. that we had to work through. And I remember at one point I put my hand on these documents and I said to the other board members, can I just ask a question? How much of this conversation, how much of these conversations that we're having are actually translating into hands-on ministry? Mm -hmm. And it was kind of silence in the room as I recall for a period of time, and I'm not I don't recall exactly where the conversation went. I don't think it was super productive. But it, let's say you're a detail-minded person. You're you are a um, like you like things perfect. So in your church ministry, you got your constitution, your subconstitution, the footnotes to the constitution. You got documents and policies for everything, mm-hmm. and you know you, you you love writing policies. You have files and files and files of procedures and. All sorts of stuff. Well, I, I think many churches don't have enough of that. They f- sort mm-hmm. of fly by the seat of their pants. But I'm speaking to those that may have too much of that. You can get so bogged down in maintaining those structures and maintaining all that organizational detail that you literally lose sight of the people God has put in front of you. Mm-hmm. So one of the illustrations I use with the staff is sometimes we just need to do high-end ministry. We don't have time for the detailed work. So suppose I go home and I look at my garage and my garage is just a mess. There's tools everywhere and stuff thrown around. I've been, I just, I just need to tidy it up. Well, one way of thinking might be to say, okay, I'm going to start with the corner, and I'm going to make this one square foot of my garage absolutely mm-hmm. perfect, and then I'm going to move to the next square foot. Then I'm going to move to the next square foot. And let's say it's 800 square feet. Well, that's a lot of time to get every square foot of that garage perfect. It's better to go in and do a general cleanup. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's all I have time. Just throw a few things up on the shelf, put it away. Then maybe I can go back another day and do a little more of a detailed cleanup. And if I have excess time, then I can do that real detailed down to the square foot mm-hmm. kind of tidy up and clean up work. But the, the, the fact of the matter is sometimes you don't have any more time than just the general cleanup. Mm-hmm. And often in ministry, your ministry is busy. That's all you have the time for. And frankly, at the end of the day, it's sufficient. So as we add detail to our churches and structures, sometimes we have to remove it. Otherwise, we end up accumulating mm-hmm. generations and generations of policies and detail and and um, administrative uh, headaches, mm-hmm. where you 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 can't get you can't get, uh, move forward. There's just too much bureaucracy mm-hmm. uh, in the way. It's like when if you if the average family goes out every week and buys groceries, and most of it's consumables, but there might be cleaning products or whatever in there. And then you're ordering stuff online, and then you're maybe buying new furniture, and you're you're bringing material Mm -hmm. into your house, consumables, non-consumables. You're bringing material into your house. Let's say, let's say in a given year you bring in an additional thousand pounds of material objects into your house. Well, if you're not at the same time throwing out a thousand pounds, eventually your house is going to be filled to the brim. And using that illustration, 
with regard to organizational structure in the church, it's important for us to be organized. But if we keep adding detail, adding layers of bureaucracy, adding layers, it's like the government. There's so many details. It's not that in and of themselves they're bad, but there's so many details and regulations. It feels like you can never get ahead in life. Mm-hmm. And a lot of churches are bottlenecked on administrative detail. So stepping back and saying, look, what I'm doing right now, whatever I'm required, the report I'm supposed to write, the the procedure I'm supposed to follow, the, the process, is it actually necessary? Is it actually helpful? Or is, is it maybe necessary for me to simplify my ministry, to save time, to do the stuff that really matters? Mm-hmm. Another area that wastes time is when you're unsure about the expectations for your area of ministry. So we spend quite a bit of time in our church and we've learned there's some others, and hopefully we can teach younger and newer churches this as well. Uh, we spend a fair bit of time at the beginning when someone's coming into an area of ministry. Generally, it's in writing. There's a ministry description, or there's a conversation that says, okay, here's here's the purpose of the ministry. Here's your general responsibilities. This is the person you uh, are accountable to. Here's expectations in terms of time off or time time given to the ministry. And then once they're up and running, there's all kinds of details mm-hmm. that we'll bring in. We're always adjusting, adjusting. Okay, here's how you should handle situation A, B, or C, or mm-hmm. here's kind of our expectations in terms of attendance or um, how you interact with people on a Sunday or in a ministry setting. Some of those are just learned on the job or in ministry. Mm-hmm. But if you're if you're asked to serve in ministry A and you're not really even sure what that is, how in the world are you ever going to be effective? So it's important for us to help people understand, lay people, vocational people, what are the expectations that we have of you? What do we actually want you to be doing in a given week, month, or uh, year? Another one would be perfectionism. There's a world of difference between striving for excellence, mm-hmm. which is a stewardship thing and striving for perfectionism, which only God, mm. only God is capable of doing things perfectly. Uh, there are many people that don't seem to ever get ahead because they're perfectionists. I remember years ago working with a young man in ministry and he, he would do a task, but he was always afraid of what I thought about it. Mm-hmm. So he wouldn't then do anything else unless I gave him direct an order. Okay, do this next. And then when he finished that, he wouldn't he wouldn't go to the next step because he was always fearful that he wasn't meeting my expectations. He was scared of making mistakes. And ultimately he didn't he didn't survive in vocational ministry. And there are many people in the church they they they're so focused on they're so concerned about failing someone's expectations or not measuring up. They're just like deer in the headlights are just stuck. And they never mm-hmm. move forward. So we, we want to aim for perfection. We want to aim for excellence, but not for perfectionism. Um, some people, you know, need maybe work in the area of excellence. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to put the time in. You need to do a good job, but not perfectionism. Scheduling. So, depending on your personality, you're going to either like schedules or dislike schedules. Same with budgets, right? Mm-hmm. So you talk to people about financial management, and some think of the word budget as freedom, 
I have a budget, that means I, I have freedom. I can plan out my, my, my expenses. I know where things are going. Others are like, I don't like budgeting. It's, it, it restrains me. I like to fly by the seat of my pants. Well, people that budget are always richer in the long run, assuming equal income, than people that don't budget. Mm -hmm. Always. Because you plan out your expenses. So much can be wasted when you don't yeah. plan it out. The same with scheduling. If you don't have any schedule, so if you have if you don't have a, a phone schedule, a written schedule, a day book, we used to have day books in the old days. We don't have those much anymore. Yep. Uh, you're going to forget things. You're not going to be productive. You don't have to-do lists. If you have a really good memory, it could be in your mind. Yep. Most people want to write it out. That can hinder productivity. No written or defined goals is another thing. So this might be interesting for our listeners to hear. When so let's suppose someone's assigned to um, just use a simple example to lead our youth group in, in a church. So let's assume you're the youth leader. You can assign. You can apply this principle to if you're leading the men's ministry, a discipleship group, a small group, mm -hmm. or whatever. And you say, uh, when you sign up for the role, okay. So what what do you want me to do? And the pastor, or the director, or whoever's your supervisor says, well. What I want you to do is I want you to run a youth group on Friday night from seven to nine. And then I want you to form a small group and disciple the top three keeners in the group for leadership. And then I want you to have to take one kid out a week for ice cream or something like that. So now you have a to-do list. Okay. I run the discipleship group. I plan the Friday night youth group mm -hmm. and I, I then take a kid out. Okay. That's a mistake. That's a mistake because what you're saying to the person then is, what I really want you to do is run the following programs. Run the same place. Well, what if culture changes, time changes, Friday nights are no longer conducive? Mm -hmm. What if time changes, culture changes, and you know, taking a kid out by himself for whatever reason isn't appropriate? Mm -hmm. you know, what, whatever it might be. Now, chances are to use those examples, those are going to be more or less effective over a lengthy period of time. Mm -hmm. But there's gonna be situations in life where a ministry that works in this generation or this culture doesn't work in the next. You're probably not gonna be running a Friday night youth group if you plant a church in the Middle East in a closed access country that's ruled by Islam. You're gonna have to figure out different ways of ministering mm -hmm. to youth. So we don't, with our ministry leaders, instead of saying, well, we want you to set goals in terms of programs, what we prefer to do is we talk about outcomes. And each of our leaders, uh, high-end leaders is required to annually submit a list of outcomes to their supervisor. And then their programs all exist to meet those out outcomes. The programs don't exist for the sake of programs. The programs mm -hmm. exist to meet outcomes. So outcomes, as opposed to, oh, Friday night youth, kid out once a week, run a discipleship group, would be, I want to disciple three young people this year. I want to broadly minister the word, and create a time of fellowship for our youth. Those, that's your outcome. That's measurable. And then what you do is you program to meet that outcome. Now, it might mean that you still do those three things, the youth group, the discipleship group, the, the, uh, the time, time away with the youth. It might mean that you say, those are the best vehicles where I can accomplish mm -hmm. these outcomes. But you keep the outcomes in mind, not the program. So pro churches aren't about programs. It's not like the coolest churches are the ones with the most programs. 
The coolest churches, if you want to call them that, are the ones that are discipling people, discipling people, teaching them the word, and equipping them for hands-on ministry, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Right? So being outcomes-oriented instead of program-oriented is important. Finally, and then maybe you could, if you have any other things you can add to this list, doing reviews. So reviewing at least annually the effectiveness of a ministry or ministry leader on all levels, having a sit-down having a conversation, creating a forum, whatever forum you choose to do it in, format you choose to do it in, to help people to think through, was I? did I meet my outcomes? Was I effective? Is there things I need to do differently? Are there any attitude adjustments I need to make? Am I walking with Christ? Am I building relationships? Am I equipping people? This is really important to help people to be more effective and to use their time in ministry. When you have the review, you can then reorganize your your next ministry season or year in accordance with it. Mm-hmm. And you might discover, you know what? There's 10 things I need to cut out of my life and five things I need to add mm-hmm. or whatever the whatever the review, whatever conclusion you draw from the review. It's about helping you to adjust so you can be increasingly effective. The worst thing you can do as a person in ministry is do the same thing day in, day out without any thought, without any rationale for the whole duration of your life mm-hmm. and never really know if you're using your time effectively or even bearing fruit mm-hmm. uh, to the glory of God. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so a couple I thought of. One I mentioned in our staff meeting yesterday you selectively didn't mention was coffee breaks. <laughs> yeah, that probably wasn't very good. That was very offensive, was actually, very offensive. Chris, for you to uh, step on the toes of those of us that appreciate coffee. <laughs> What's in your mug, by the way? Oh, just some hot chocolate. Hot it's not coffee. Chocolate. Yeah, oh. I know. So girly. <laughs> um, one of the things, again, this might not hit a lot of listeners, but um, – I know a waster of time for me is when I feel the need to read a book completely. So you start a book and then you're like, I have to finish it. It's like, well, no, you don't have to finish it. There's no rule. It's immoral. Are you talking about the Bible? No, no, no. no, no. (laughs) Of course the Bible I'm reading. But you start a book and I won't mention titles lest I offend people, but uh, that could be one. Um, And that just is almost with projects too, right? There's some projects you start that you don't have to finish because the purpose of it's changed Right. Um, now, one cardinal sin that we need to point out is if it, if people fail to listen to every episode of this it's, podcast, it's true. And that would be from episode one. Yeah, from <laughs> episode. <laughs> you can go back and start. Um, another one I thought of is uh, along the lines of there's there's so many. Well, I'll I'll see how I wrote it down so that I get it right. But essentially, we can prepare for worst case scenarios that will never happen, mm. and it's a waste of time. Mm. So. The last few years, some worst case scenarios in some ways have happened. But for example, if I'm spending every weekend building a, a bunker under my house, it's probably not the best use of my time. Plus, it's not going to work very well. Right. But yeah. that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So what, what would be the, like the application of that in ministry, do you think, where people are um, serving or building aspects of a ministry that don't actually mm-hmm. They probably aren't going to be very helpful. Like what what comes to my t- mind again is kind of the bureaucratic regulatory side of yep. ministry. So to use an example, uh, we live in a highly permitted and regulated culture. Mm-hmm. So if you want to build a house, there's all kinds of steps you got to go through in a lot of jurisdictions to accomplish the actual building of the house. Environmental reports, permits, inspections. Now each of those steps has a rationale attached mm-hmm. to it. There was a reason historically why someone said we need to add this layer, this layer, this layer. But taken cumulatively, 
you can get to a point where it's impossible to ever get the house built because mm -hmm. there's so many steps you have to go through. Yep. And for the sake of making the building of houses possible, sometimes we just need to shrink the regulations. And I think that takes place in the lives of some churches. Like the decision-making processes, for example, of adding a bathroom. Mm -hmm. Like you really need multiple meetings, congregational meetings, votes. Yep. Just, can't someone, in, isn't someone in your church responsible enough and mature enough to just take the bull by the horns and build the bathroom? Like, is it really a good use of your time? Did you have any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I was thinking about, um, so you could have thoughts about, uh, we're talking right now about censorship, right? Trying to figure out what kind of level of censorship is coming to Canada. And there is some level of censorship, but we want to have a realistic expectation so that it doesn't become uh, me as a pastor trying to figure out how I'm going to communicate via ham radio to all the people in the church when, well, maybe we need to, but that's maybe not the most realistic use of my time. Mm -hmm. um, I don't even know if that works, <laughs> right? right? So, right. but Well, we're in the process of breeding passenger or uh, messenger Messenger pigeons, pigeons. yeah, exactly. So, so right back to that. Or like figuring out, so I've, th I've thought about this with our, our classical school and education because there's some skills we need to teach our people because they're useful and there's some that, are no longer useful. So there's a time when it was necessary to teach a student how to hitch a horse to a, a carriage and everybody knew how to do that. Well, if I don't raise my kids to learn how to hitch a horse to a carriage, it's probably not going to affect their life. But there's some tools that, for example, we were talking about spell checkers. Um, so our, our students, can they use a spell checker or not use a spell checker? Well, we want them to learn how to, to spell well. But there's some skills, some things we don't need to learn and it's okay. Like some people will need to learn and we could learn them quickly again, how to hook a horse to a carriage. It's not rocket science, but if we spend all our time training people in things that are not actually necessary then or needed in our culture and day and age, um, how to generate electricity on their own. Well, maybe that's useful. Maybe it's not urgent. Mm -hmm. It's maybe not the high priority. So yeah. good. Anyways, just a couple of thoughts there. Any final any final tips on time wasters or well in addition time? to the above, it strikes me that all of this is predicated upon developing a true biblical view of work and rest. So we we see work as laborsome, Genesis three, partially because of the effects of the curse, but also redemptive. God put Adam and Eve in the garden before sin to work the garden, to tend the garden. So a, a, a good biblical theology of work is predicated upon the belief that wor work is, is both laborsome and it's affected by the fall, but there's also something innately redemptive and valuable about working as unto the Lord. The reason why I emphasize this is because I think when I was a kid, I perceived of heaven as a place where we didn't do anything. Mm. Like that God's eternal kingdom is just just walk around, walk through the golden streets and talk to Jesus and, you know, pet little lambs or whatever it might be. And in all honesty, part of me doesn't even find that super attractive because God has actually created us to work. And I suspect that in some way in the eternal kingdom, there's still going to be a tending aspect. It's not going to be affected by the curse. It's not going to be sweat of the brow. We probably won't need deodorant, but we won't need back rubs because we're not going to be worn out doing it. But there's something redemptive and valuable about work. So to, to serve the Lord 
in ministry, which is work, we need to have a redemptive view of it. This is valuable. It's beneficial. It's creational to work as unto the Lord. And then we also have to have a view of rest because we're not we're not machines that are just designed to do run the same play. You go to a factory, maybe you got a machine that punches out a piece of metal, punches it out, punches it out, punches it out, or drills a hole, drills a hole, or cuts something out with a laser all day long. You got to grease it, you got to mm-hmm. power it, but it's just a machine. That's not us. Mm-hmm. We also we can't just work nonstop twenty four seven. We our bodies need rest. It's a beautiful thing, and it it it's it's not lazy to rest one in seven. It's not lazy to sleep eight hours at night. It's a beneficial thing. We shouldn't shouldn't feel guilty for that. In fact, we should feel guilty if we avoid it. So it's predicated upon a, a balance and understanding of the benefits of work and rest. It's also important to understand your gifts and calling, Mm -hmm. so you're serving in an area of ministry where you can be productive. How do you understand your gifts and calling? Well, there's personal prayer, asking the Lord to reveal to you your unique contribution to the kingdom. A a huge factor is when you're serving, especially in the early years, are you bearing fruit? Is it charging your battery or or wearing you out? But a huge, often under-taught aspect of discovering your calling and your giftedness is the affirmation of God's people. Mm-hmm. If you are not affirmed by God's people as a pastor, a deacon, a youth leader, a counselor, whatever it might be, but you're affirmed in another area, that's what you should be pursuing. Too many young people, young men in particular, they self-appoint themselves into ministry. They just announce, I'm going to seminary. And we've seen this. I've seen this many times over the years of ministry. Some guy announces, I'm going to seminary. I'm thinking, okay, we didn't ask me. We didn't even have a conversation about it. If you want to spend 50 grand on seminary, no problem. You didn't ask, but I personally don't think you're cut out for it. Mm-hmm. But if, if, you, if you're not wise enough to even ask for affirmation from people, I could be wrong, of course, but looking for affirmation from God's people. Others, you know, I want to I want to start ministry ABC. You're thinking, well, to be honest with you, you're not you're not really gifted in that area, but you are gifted in this area. So, getting good input from people that love you and care for you and have seen you in action mm-hmm. is really important. It'll save you a ton of wasted time and frustration. And then finally, I would just say make up a schedule. Um th- think of it this way. People are like, "Oh, I'm so busy. I'm so busy." Well, <clears throat> Most people's jobs take plus or minus 40 hours a week. It's not unreasonable to expect that a person might serve 10 hours a week in their church or in their Christian ministry. It's not unreasonable then for a person to take 16 hours a week for Sabbath rest. So that's a 24-hour day. Take out the eight hours for sleep. You got Mm -hmm. 16 hours left. So that leaves you... 46 hours after you've deducted all that of waking time for travel, for family time, for work around your property, for entertainment. We have lots of time Mm -hmm. if we're living balanced lives. It's just that some people fritter it away on reels, on Facebook, procrastinating, Mm -hmm. eating out all the time, not scheduling things. Um, I remember someone many years ago that didn't have a lot of money. So when they wanted to buy groceries, they'd just drive to the grocery store and buy what they would need for that day. 
but they did it every day of the week. So at the end of the day, they were wasting maybe an hour every day times seven days doing something that if they just got one week ahead, Mm -hmm. they could save all that time. So sometimes just some scheduling and planning is is important and, and, and helpful. And while life is short, God does give us enough time to accomplish everything that he wants us to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't he? Yeah. Yep. Why would he give us three, four, five assignments and then short changes in time to do that? So he gives us enough time. We, we just need to discern what is the best use of our time and then serve as unto the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yep, well said. Good. Well, I think there's a special announcement you wanted to uh, bring to our listeners about a book or something. Yeah. So um, I just wanted to, I wanted to give a little bit of a plug for a book written by a friend of mine uh, in this podcast. His name is Paul Dirks. He's a pastor in Western Canada, and he recently wrote a book which he asked me to review called uh, "Deep Discipleship for Dark Days." And the subtitle is "A Manual for Holding Fast to What Is Good." So, in the book, he, you know, he talks about all of the cultural issues, many of the cultural issues that we're experiencing. We have technological totalitarianism, godless ideologies, crumbling Christian institutions. It's a hostile world and many Christians are asking, you know, how, how do I survive? How do I how do I prepare for that? So he touches on uh, vaccines and mandates and big pharma and WEF and all these sorts of characters that are involved in controlling people and controlling corporations, but the book is not primary, primarily about that. It's really a book about helping people to think through how they can survive and thrive in the coming catac- cataclysm and making sure that you're, to use his words, your soul is secured and your integrity is intact. Mm. So if if that is of interest to you, I would uh, heartily commend that book to you. You can check out uh, Ezra Institute's website to, to order the book, and uh, hopefully it will be of benefit to you just thinking through some of the issues of the, the current moment. That's good. Well, and we'll try to th- show or, um, throw a link in our show notes for that book as well, and uh, that way you don't waste time going to look for it. So it'll be <laughs> well good. Well done. <laughs> That's good. And not a, not a moment of this podcast has wasted time for you listeners today, just so you know. That's great. We're so thankful you tuned in. Thank you, Aaron, for putting the time into uh, organizing that and presenting it. And we hope and bless, we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you and that uh, you'll just be equipped to use your time well for God's glory. Reminder, you can find this podcast over on the pursuitofglory.org website, as well as the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and their app. And uh, we'll hope you'll tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.